In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Give to the emperor what is the emperor's, and give to God what is God's. In this morning's gospel reading, Jesus is faced with an impossible question. The Pharisees and the Herodians pretend to come in good faith, saying, We know that you're sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth, and show no deference to anyone, for you do not regard people with partiality. They pretend to come in good faith, but the whole thing's a setup. This isn't about the theoretical relationship one has to the state. Taxes aren't just taxes. They're concessions to the ongoing subjugation and oppression of God's people by the pagan Roman Empire. At least that's what they were in the first century. The Pharisees and Herodians were actually polar opposites in their own answers to the question. The Pharisees were purists and were opposed to the continued support of the Caesars in principle. The Herodians, on the other hand, were pragmatic and recognizing the might of Rome, they had chosen to ally themselves with power in order to have a seat at the table. So although the question was phrased as a theoretical one, is it lawful to pay the tax? It wasn't really. The difference between the free folk and the kneelers here had real life consequences. Less than 30 years prior, a man from Galilee named Judas led a revolt against Rome. It was, as many were, a failed revolt. And as a result, he and his followers were hung on crosses on the highways and byways of Israel. As a reminder, taxes are not optional. The question was personal for Jesus, who had included both Simon, a revolutionary zealot, and Matthew, a tax collector, in his inner circle of 12. I can only imagine their discomfort as the question is asked. I imagine myself in the moment and I wondered, had they each softened their own perspectives? Had they constantly argued with one another about the relationship between Jerusalem and Rome? Was this a known thing among the disciples? Levi and Simon are arguing again. Or did they avoid the topic altogether in order to preserve their friendship? Best not discuss politics. Well, in addition to the potential tension among the 12, there was tension throughout Jerusalem, only intensified by Jesus's triumphal entry just one or two days earlier. That's the context in which this question is posed. Jesus recognizes the trap and outplays his opponents. And his answer is, I think, more complex than we sometimes give him credit. So he first asks for the coin, but the coin itself is blasphemous. Not only does it have a graven image, that of Caesar, but it includes an inscription that names Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. So when Jesus asks them, whose image is this? Whose title? I think we can read it with a level of derision. Whose icon are you holding? And who is it that's claiming to be the son of the divine? I don't think it should be lost on us that later when Jesus is brought in front of the Sanhedrin, they'll ask him if he is the son of God, the Messiah. And his own identification as such, you have said it so, will be evidence of his blasphemy. What's interesting is that Jesus doesn't really answer their question. Anyone listening in hoping for a de definitive answer on the tax doesn't actually get one. Do we pay the tax? Is it wrong if we do? If we understand Jesus is just saying, yeah, render to Caesar what Caesar's, go ahead, pay the tax which I'm, many of us have heard before, no one would be amazed. That would, just, that, that would just be siding with the Herodians. It's not a clever move. That would be a move to concede that matters here on earth get to be decided by might. 
I've also heard it said that he's doing a clever bit of wordplay, that technically all things belong to God, so render to God what is God's is really everything, that render to Caesar what is Caesar's is nothing, and God is owed everything. Now that's true, but does that mean he's just taking the side of the Pharisees and the Zealots? I think Jesus is doing something more than that. I think he's defying their categories, showing that the question itself is flawed. But to get there, I actually want to go back to our reading from Malachi, dealing with a different type of tax or tribute. Malachi is writing to the people of God after they have returned from exile. And while the return was meant to be a renewal for God's people, it really didn't live up to that expectation. Malachi wrote about a need for purification for God's people. By this point in his book, he's already criticized Israel for their injustice, for their unfaithfulness in marriage, for offering blemished animals for sacrifice. He had warned the priests that they need to be faithful to God. And here in chapter 3, he calls out Israel for withholding tithes. But at the beginning of our reading, though, he starts by fixing our eyes on God. Even in the middle of calling out the unfaithfulness of the people, God points out through Malachi that he does not change, which is why the descendants of Jacob have not been destroyed. Though God frequently chooses to act through human agency, the unfaithfulness of his agents can't thwart his plan. He's reminding them, I'm about to call you out for your sin, but don't forget, you exist because of my faithfulness, because of who I am, not because of who you are. Nevertheless, the unfaithfulness has to be addressed. And in this section of the book, Malachi accuses the people of robbing God by withholding their tithes. How is not tithing the same as stealing? Well, again, in a technical sense, all things belong to God. So what, withholding what is his is stealing, in a sense. And as a practical matter, the Israelite priesthood was one-twelfth of the population, so tithes are necessary for keeping the worship of Yahweh intact. But it is more problematic than just an underfunded Levitical operational budget. Holding on to everything for yourself is an example of unfaithfulness. In the same way that taking a Sabbath is a way to sacrifice some of your own potential prosperity in order to honor God, tithing is a way to recognize that everything you have belongs to God in the first place and offering your first fruit to him. It's a posture, a habit that forms and shapes the people of God to be open to generosity. It puts the idea that we're simply stewards of God's things into actual practice. Now, earlier in the book, God told the people that they were wearying God by saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord. Where is the God of justice? Complaining that those who did evil seemed to be doing pretty well. I think the two problems are related. I think they both betray an abandonment of God as first principle, as the starting point for our lives. Instead, by beginning with facts on the ground, the Israelites end up doing theology in the wrong direction and ultimately abandoning what God asked of them. They said to themselves, I look around and God seems distant and unconcerned. Why tithe? I look around and evil people seem to be getting their blessings. Why should I follow such a God? Starting there takes matters into our own hands rather than trusting them to God in the first place. It assumes that we can see the whole board and understand what God is doing. Interestingly, God's response to the tithing question is to tell the people to test me in this. Testing God is generally discouraged in scripture, but here he wants to show that he is good. God promises blessings to the land if they would be faithful. 
This isn't, of course, a specific promise for personal wealth and prosperity, but a general blessing for a community that seeks him. And the nations who will have seen their exile as shame will call them blessed. God offers a reversal of their humiliation. I think about the invitation in the Psalms to taste and see that the Lord is good. Or when Jesus calls his disciples to follow him and he'll make them fishers of men. God's promise is that when we truly seek after him, when we truly follow him, we will find that way of life to be abundant. Or seek ye first the kingdom of God and these things will be added unto you. Abundance, though, is not the same thing as comfort. We see in the introduction to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians that we read, Paul writes of how thankful he and Silvanus and Timothy are to God for the church in Thessaloniki. It's a church that has not found the abundance of Christ to be easy. They were likely Gentile converts who made this culturally radical shift from Roman paganism over to Christianity. And Paul writes of the significant suffering that they encountered, but that their perseverance through that suffering became known throughout the whole region Paul commends their work of faith and their labor of love and their steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. It is starting with Jesus and in their perseverance in Jesus that they have found that these fruits of the Spirit have grown. In both the case of the Thessalonians and the Israelites in Malachi's day, we find that in times of difficulty or trouble, it may be that directing our focus on God feels like an ineffective or unreasonable move. But what our texts are commending to us is that those are times when it is in fact most important for us to reorient and focus on God. If we do not have our eyes fixed on the reality that Jesus is Lord, our compass headings will not be properly fixed, and it's so easy to go astray. This brings me back to Jesus and the question of the tax. Jesus' advice, of course, has no practical applications. When the Roman guard shows up at your house asking for their tribute, you either have to pay or not. You can't simply say, I'll give to Caesars what is Caesars and I'll give to God what is God's because they'll say, okay, time to give to Caesar what is Caesars. But Jesus' answer to whether or not it is right to pay the tax, his answer is to poke holes in the question itself. Because Jesus is eventually going to overcome the Caesar's empire, but not on the Caesar's terms. It, in fact, will look just like he's lost to Rome, just like Judas of Galilee did in the year 6 AD, and like any number of would-be revolutionaries did before and after Jesus. It looks like failure. It looks impractical. So Jesus is poking holes in their assumptions to get them to first fix their eyes on God, by exposing the idolatry of the coin itself and reminding them that everything belongs to God in the first place. It's a sort of defiance, a sort of dispassionate shrug at the Roman authorities. And he'll carry that same defiance into Pilate's chambers, telling him that the power of the empire is on loan from the father. Pilate says, I have the power to kill you. And Jesus says, only because God gave it to you. I I read a lot of tone into that passage and I see this like, Maybe it's because I've been in youth ministry. I see this like defiant, petulant, teenage, like shrug at Pilate, the same way that teenagers shrug at substitute teachers. I know from experience. This is Jesus's posture towards empire. Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. And so we start with him. We make him the foundation of how we think and how we live first things first. And we live in a time and place in which the siren call to ask the wrong questions first is ever present. 
It might be a call to falsely deify the nation we live in, its founding documents, or the founders themselves. I promise you, Brad, Kathy, and I didn't coordinate on this, but don't miss the cover image for today's bulletin or at the top of the online version where we can notice both the Roman coin that Jesus criticized in his day and an American nickel on which the inscription, In God We Trust, is next to the face of Thomas Jefferson, a man who famously cut out the supernatural parts of the Gospels, including the resurrection, in order to make it more palatable for evangelizing. Or maybe the question that you're being called to ask first is this desire to downplay any of what makes Christianity more than secular humanism with vestments in order, in order to be seen as in line with whatever is the benign niceness of our day. Both impulses want to start with our context, to start with America or American culture, and then see how Jesus will fit in afterwards. We'll need a theological imagination to imagine different realities, different visions of God's kingdom coming from keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus in order to combat the false dichotomies we're faced with. And true, at some point, we either have to pay the tax or not, vote or not. You can't write Jesus in on the ballot. I suppose you can, but it'll just get rejected. But if we don't keep our eyes fixed on the fact that this and every other nation and power and principality will eventually bow the knee to Jesus, it will be so easy to lose our way. In fact, if we lose sight of Christ's kingdom, we'll start to make assumptions that we already know what is best. It reminds me of the end of the book of Judges. After a series of shocking stories of immorality that never make it into either children's Bibles or Sunday lectionaries, the writer closes by saying this, there was no king in that day, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The writer's not saying that they have yet to establish a monarchy and that's when everything will go well. The problem is that they weren't fixing their eyes on Yahweh. And in doing so, their sense of right and wrong had become corrupted. Before you know it, we end up living like the ends justify the means. And we, we behave in ways that neither love God nor neighbor, in ways that do little more than betray a deep sense of self-righteousness and conviction that our cause is the right one, whether or not it's Jesus' cause. Jesus' own interactions in the politics of his day encouraged his disciples to make God, not Caesar, the focal point and foundation of their understanding of what was good. I recently heard the AND campaign's Justin Gibney on a podcast. If you're unfamiliar, the AND campaign is an organization whose mission is to educate and organize Christians for civic and cultural engagement. It's a nonpartisan organization. I encourage anyone to take a look at it. I think they have really good stuff. And he named the elephant in the room. He said that in order to fulfill their mission and to encourage Christians to think and impact culture and politics with the love of Christ, he had to make sure that what they were doing didn't revolve around Donald Trump. It sounded to me like the best advice I've heard in years. Today, Donald Trump is the president and we will pray for him just like we do every president and every president who comes after him. But he has become the Roman tax of our day, the place where all of our conversations about the common good begin and end. Either in opposition or support of him, he becomes our first principle. And if we allow anyone other than Jesus to dictate the terms and questions we use to seek the common good, we will just become pawns in their games. Or, as Stanley Hauerwas puts it, polite lapdogs of the empire. We have to make real choices in the real world in which we live. In God's infinite wisdom, Jesus became human in an incredibly fraught political climate. But navigating the complexities of first century pol political realities was a second tier issue for Jesus. His eyes were fixed on the Father, 
and on making the kingdom of heaven known in word and in deed. And his disciples followed in the same manner. Paul invoked his Roman citizenship as a last resort when it was the only way to avoid execution. For Paul, neither his status among the Pharisees or as a citizen of the Roman Empire, neither of them were anything more than a tool to be used to advance the good news of the kingdom of heaven. I wonder what it would look like for us to treat our American citizenship the same way. Well, I pray that God may give us a fresh and renewed vision of him and his kingdom so that we can pay proper tribute with our whole lives to the only ruler who really matters, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.